Hey, this is Mallory. And this is Bethany. And you're listening to Killer Stargazing. This is the podcast where we pick a killer and read their birth chart and see if we can get a more in-depth look at what makes them tick. If you don't know what a birth chart is, it is a map of the positions of the planets when a person was born. Every week we also have our featured killer cocktail. This week we're having the boogeyman. It is vodka, Midori melon liqueur, lemon juice, and honey topped with whipped cream and some sprinkles if you're feeling sassy. (laughs) As always, the recipe will be posted on our Instagram at Killer Stargazing, so check it out. That being said, if you like true crime and astrology or you're just curious, grab a drink and let's get into it. Well, cheers. Yes. Cheers. Yummy. It's very yummy. Yes. Okay. So this week we have, in my opinion, the worst person who ever lived, Mm -hmm. literally gives me nightmares, Albert Fish. And as a Taurus, I am extremely offended (laughs) that he is also a Taurus. (laughs) So I didn't know at first the killer we were doing like usual. Mm -hmm. Um, But like what had happened was I, when I was looking at the chart, I had noticed a particular placement that we haven't really covered yet in any of the birth charts, but not to say that like no one else has had a similar placement, but it's something that wasn't really on my radar before. Yeah. Um, But recently I've just kind of been hearing more and more about it and it intrigued me. So I was specifically looking for it and lo and behold, it is in his chart. So as I'm just researching the aspect and reading up on it, I come across uh, an article that was not only talking about it, but was using very notorious people and events as examples <laughs> with this particular placement. <laughs> so I was skimming through the examples. There was maybe like eight or ten of them. And then as I'm skimming through, I, I see the birthday. Oh, and I, no. I see that it says Albert Fish. I st- I have never heard of him, so I don't know. And I, I didn't read like on like, that... you know, what he's done or anything. So that's insane to me, though, <laughs> that you've never heard of him. I know. Well, I know. I can't wait to. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, he's he's very, very big, very notorious to just be singled out and especially for this placement. But um, so it obviously means something at least yeah. when it comes to him. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but also the good thing about finding this article, it had his birth time. Oh, really? Yeah. So like we have a rising sign now. Holy shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so what we are working with today is a Taurus sun, yeah. Capricorn moon, mm-hmm. and an Aries rising. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like there's... A lot of Aries stuff recently. Yeah. But, so, um, so I'm going to start with his Aries ascendant. Okay. So the first house, the ascendant, this symbolizes just basic personality traits, physical appearance, temperament, behavior, and the first impression you give. So people with Aries ascendant, they are very active. They want to have the power to enforce their intentions. They want to develop their own abilities, and they do not want to wait for, like, anything. Just very fucking impatient. Okay. So Aries is ruled by Mars. Since Mars is the planet of energy, action, and desire, Aries rising are likely to always be moving forward towards their goals, whatever they may be. They absolutely hate boredom, and they want their life to be as exciting as possible. Well. Mm. (laughs) Now, Aries ascendant men in particular... 
definitely like to be in control. Okay. <laughs> they are driven by their ambition and they have the tendency to act hot-headedly and impulsively. Okay. They are very aggressive and they like to tell other people what to do. Okay. They very much <laughs> enjoy risk, fights, conflicts, and they get very easily frustrated, like to the point of temper tantrums when things don't go their way. Okay. okay. <laughs> Real mature, Aries. Real mature. So let's look at the other planets he has in his first house in Aries, because we've got a few. Oh, really? Yeah. So first we have Venus, which represents not only how we give and receive love and what makes us happy, it can also represent weakness and shallowness. I'm super curious about this. Yes, that's right, because isn't... um. Wait, isn't is Oscar Aries Venus or? Oh, yeah, he is an Aries Venus. Okay. I am also an Aries Venus. Oh, I just are. mean in regards to Albert Fish mm. because Venus is the way you handle relationships and yes. love. Okay, okay, all right. So, so people with Venus in Aries. How do I put this lightly? Because you're talking <laughs> about me. <laughs> Okay, well, sorry, I can't, because they are just straight up devilish and immoral, okay? Like, just absolutely shameless in the way they pursue their desires. Okay, way on point for Albert Fish. It's a man. Maybe slightly. Yeah, it's a man, too, we're talking about here, too. Okay, so, so just my husband. <laughs> um, just, again, just very impulsive and impatient in everything related to relationships. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but the more cultured or developed parts of a personality can definitely suppress this to an extent, but there is something just very wild and animalistic in their ways. Uh, something that can never be completely suppressed, no matter how civilized they're able to behave on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so with... Bleh, all right. So with this, we have Venus square Uranus. And this aspect complicates any relationship because these people see relationships literally as a loss of personal freedom and integrity. They are mentally unstable and their feelings constantly change. Mm. And they do tend to go through a great number of relationships throughout their life. They're, uh... I'm going to zero in on the mentally unstable. <laughs> okay. So for Albert Fish. <laughs> yes. Now, they are unconventional, difficult to get along with, eccentric, unstable in their ways of dealing with money, and pretty much everything else, apparently. They just lead a very unstable love life. Correct. Mm. Now, the next first house placement of his I'm going to touch on is his Black Moon Lilith, our shadow side. So Lilith represents our primitive instincts and primal behavior. It's basically like the secret side of your personality or who you are at your core. Mm-hmm. A monster. Is what <laughs> now, when a person with Lilith in Aries feels the need to assert themselves, it feels so wrong and unnatural that they do it in a very extreme and messy way. Oh, my so, God. <laughs> just as that. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> extreme. Mm -hmm. Unnatural. Yeah. So blind force, brutal indulgence, often resulting in very devastating actions. Holy shit. <laughs> Lilith in this position does emphasize the spontaneity and impulsivity of Aries. Mm -hmm. These people are active and very difficult to control. However, there can be some fear of taking the lead and making executive decisions, 
but a simultaneous desire to do so, which can lead to extremes of behavior in these areas. Mm-hmm. So what I find interesting about this placement is like when your ascendant is the same sign as your Lilith, which I know yours is as well in Scorpio. Yeah, Scorpio. So it can be very difficult because you obviously embody so many characteristics of your rising sign, but when your sign is also in Lilith, these same characteristics that are so very you can also feel wrong or cause shame in some way when trying to express yourself. Hmm. So it can cause, you know, just some, some heavy internal conflicts. Like, my Lilith is in Leo, and I have no other major Leo placements or even really any major fire placements. Like, my rising and Mercury are both in Sagittarius, but... Like we've talked about before, I don't consider Sag to be the same kind of fire that Leo and Aries is. No. Like, they are fire. Yeah. Whereas Sag to me is more like a scented candle or like a cozy little fireplace. <laughs> like the like the fake electric one. Yes. <laughs> or like the Yule log on your TV that you yeah. play on Christmas. That's a Sag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just not the same kind of aggressive energy. So, like, my struggles... The, um, are traits that maybe like a Leo sun arising would absolutely embrace. Yeah. Like, spotlight, calling attention to themselves. <laughs> You're like, no thanks, mm. please. Yeah, Capricorn's probably the most unlike Leo, maybe like along with Virgo. But <laughs> So when your Lilith sign's already kind of opposite of any of your big three, it's, it's you know, don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of shit in there. It's just, yeah. you know, not as conflicting to your day-to-day self. Yeah, because so. you already have so many of the aspects yes. of it. <laughs> So we have one more Aries placement to talk about real quick, and then we're moving the fuck on from Aries. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's just the last one I'm going to talk about. There's actually more in Aries. I just want to move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so he has his Chiron in Aries. Mm. Now, Chiron is known as the wounded healer. It shows us our unhealed trauma in this life and our deepest spiritual wounds. Ooh. So people with Chiron in Aries in the first house may be traumatized by the fact that despite all their efforts, they're not really successful because they're not very proactive and assertive. Now, you might think that this is somewhat contradictory to what an Aries rising would be. Yeah. But what they're lacking is not assertiveness in and of itself. What they lack is the appropriate dose of healthy aggression, like the kind of competitive nature that's needed in society to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. To have any kind of like worldly success. Okay. So the first house rules physical self-expression. So here there's a sense of almost being like a non-entity. Huh. Like they'll struggle to express themselves in a way that like works in society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing nothing (laughs) that he does works in society. (laughs) They usually compensate for this with exaggerated, aggressive activity, which, of course, left unhealed will make for a very vicious cycle. <laughs> Can't wait till we get into some of these stories for you to be like, oh, okay. There it is. All right. So that's what we have for his ascendant. Now, you know what time it is. Time the for my list of Aries rising slips. Okay. So we have Rihanna, who actually is also an Aries moon. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. I don't think we've gone into that placement yet. Mm-mm. Shakira, love her. Heath Ledger, who I mentioned in the Jane episode because he is also an Aries son. I Mm. love him. John Lennon, Kendall Jenner, also an Aries moon. (laughs) Wonder if we're in our friends. (laughs) James Dean, Morgan Freeman, Benjamin Franklin, who is also a Capricorn sun in Pisces mood, my name. Oh, so so he's crazy. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Crazy smart. Uh, Chris Rock. Again, also an Aries moon. So 
that's funny. <laughs> Lots of Aries moon, Aries rising. Yeah. Uh, Taylor Schilling, Piper from oh. Orange is the New Black. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Donnie Wahlberg, mm-hmm. Easy e Nostradamus. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. And are you ready for this one? <laughs> Honolulu, Hawaii is an Aries rising. <laughs> It's a Sag sun and a Scorpio moon. Thank you. <laughs> so that was funny. That is funny. All right. So speaking of sunny Hawaii, let's move on to a sun sign. Yeah. So the sun in Taurus. But I'm not. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really well, upset about it. I know. But, well, okay, so people being born under this sun sign, there is a pronounced stubborn streak in them, obviously. Mm. Taurus is a fixed sign, so change, not their strong suit. Uh, definitely most comfortable and secure with whatever is familiar. Yep. Now, they do have a temper, although they rarely show it for all to see, because they're actually equally patient. It's only when opposed that they really become angry. <laughs> <laughs> there is, like, volcanic activity going on underneath this easygoing exterior that they pull off. Like the bull that represents this sign quietly grazing in the pasture. They're not looking to challenge anyone, but it would be pretty stupid to try and challenge them. Try me, bitch. <laughs> also, for him. Mm-hmm. The fuck? <laughs> I just, you know what? I look at these aspects in myself and think, oh, that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I also didn't do all the fucked up shit he did. So. True, true. And of course, you know, it's that... Different degrees, different degrees, different other, you know, placement, squares, oppositions, all and, that. And know? Taurus men are very Taurus different from women. Taurus women. For sure, for sure. So, well, now that being said, Taurus people do have a tendency to get involved in violent situations, specifically if it has to do with love or money. Mm. Those are their triggers. Okay. So they often antagonize others and incite the passion of lovers because of their stubbornness and possessiveness. <laughs> Possessive? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Taurus are incapable of seeing their wrongs. Most apologies come from a place of just wanting to end the situation, but not from a place of actual remorse. <laughs> <laughs> I choked on my drink. <laughs> like, I mean, you'll be lucky if you even get an apology from a Taurus anyway. Uh, I'm sorry <laughs> that you feel that way. I just can't make those jokes with you. <laughs> Okay, so Taurus always feels justified in what they've done to hurt or offend someone. (laughs) Even if they were the start of the situation, they will not feel bad, and they'll manipulate the person into thinking that they're actually the cause of the problem. Hmm, shame on you. (laughs) (laughs) Only sometimes, and I want to say when I was in my 20s. Not so much now. Yeah, maturity is part of it, of course. Exactly. But also, I don't think I really had... Much say in the manipulation aspect, considering my moon and rising is in Scorpio, which is one of the most True. manipulative signs. It's just your destiny. No. Yeah. <laughs> now, when a Taurus does apologize, it comes in the form of, I'm sorry, but you, <laughs> blah, blah, which isn't actually an apology. <laughs> they manage to deflect and blame the other for something they've done. I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> They're similar with their fellow earth signs in that aspect, emotional manipulation, and just not accepting responsibility in their wrong. Now, Taurus is ruled by Venus, and they are heavily materialistic and often arrogant. Image and perfection is important to them, so they really want the world to view them as such. They tend to overindulge and spend money. They sometimes don't have on stuff they don't need, like cars or... I have no idea what you're talking about. Jewelry, clothes, home decor, even food, okay? 
Okay, so Taurus is the most gluttonous sign, and this is probably the most common overindulgence in Taurus. Food? Yes. 100%. Mm -hmm. Oh! What? Did he overindulge himself? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, great. Oh, it's so (laughs) gross. All right, so they're also show-offs. They do love to boast about their accomplishments, and they like to give their unwarranted opinions as they view themselves as intelligent, (laughs) successful, and worthy of praise and listening to. They very often give themselves the role of advisor or teacher way before anyone has asked them for their insight, and (laughs) can really annoy people. But the funny part is that they are unwilling to listen to advice of others. (laughs) Taurus is that friend that will come to you for advice and completely ignore it. You know, that just doesn't really, like, fit with what I saw in my <laughs> head. Really not what I wanted you to say, so never mind. <laughs> Thanks. Nice try. So that covers the gist of the main negative Taurus aspects. And honestly, I'm like, don't get a big head about this. I know you will. Taurus thus far has been the hardest sign for me to find, like, truly horrible negative traits about. Mm-hmm. And, like, he doesn't even have any squares or oppositions or anything in his sun sign. And oh, really? And that's normally where shit gets crazy anyway, so... Just move on to the celebrity part and get going. <laughs> All right. Stephen Baldwin. Not the best Baldwin, but whatever. Still a Baldwin. Cher. Icon. George Clooney. Stephen Colbert. George Carlin. Fucking legend. I love him. Love him. Kirsten Dunst. Janet Jackson. The Rock. I know. Mom. I know you he know is. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Willie Nelson. Jack Nicholson. Michelle Pfeiffer. William Shakespeare. Mm. And Pope John Paul II. Oh. <laughs> Although I doubt people even know any of this. Yeah. <laughs> now, I also found a couple of celebs that have both Taurus Sun and Aries Rising. Oh, okay. So, with that, we have Barbara Streisand. Penelope Cruz. Ava Perone. And... Nikki Reed. Oh, my God. Married to your vampire demon. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. I um, first saw her in the movie 13. When yes. I, I was 13. I was obsessed with that movie. I mean, I was much older than 13 when it came out, but not much, but a little. And uh, But no, I love that movie. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Okay. So moving on to the moon, our emotional and unconscious response to life as it happens. Mm-hmm. And his moon is in Capricorn. Mm. Now, as I said, the moon does represent emotional, sympathetic side of a personality, whereas Capricorn is a pretty unemotional sign. Yeah. However, unknown to all but their closest allies, they do actually suffer from feelings of insecurity and loneliness. That um, that checks out no for him. No understands me, yeah. They often conceal this with a very dry sense of humor. Mm. Similar to what I just did there. Uh... <laughs> Their secret nightmare is being abandoned or having someone they love stop loving them. So it's very hard for them to reveal their deepest feelings, and this is why they're often perceived as cold and calculating. He actually is cold and calculating, Mm -hmm. so, you know. (laughs) Well, for Lunar Capricorns, authority and power are compensation for difficulties um, that they encounter when it comes to emotions of any kind. Mm -hmm. Because, Because of this, they tend to not really find love. Especially in youth. Yeah. Like maybe when they're older, depending on how they mature emotionally. But something tells me that maybe he didn't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, his moon is opposition Uranus. And this aspect brings people the feeling that they've been wronged and they need to do something about it. They often randomly decide to just radically change their lives. They like chaos and they do not like to lead a respectable family-oriented life. Okay. 
So, like, yes and no. Mm-hmm. But chaotic. Chaos. Yes. Him. 100%. Okay. Well, they love alternative ways of living, and they're very individualistic. Mm. For this reason, living in a community or family environment does not really suit them. And they feel very separated from society. Mm. These people are predisposed to great emotional tension, imbalance, and just explosive emotions in general. Okay. Uh, His moon is square Neptune. And this aspect gives people the need to search for something more, something beyond normal human experience, Mm. be it some type of like religious movement or even the occult. Um, These people tend to be a bit confused, chaotic, and just have very unrealistic desires. Yeah, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. (laughs) All right, now uh, I'll move on to his Uranus, which is the planet of change and chaos, and it is in Cancer. Okay. And I feel like we don't really talk about this planet quite as much by itself. No, we don't. Because, you know, it is an outer planet. It's slower moving. So it stays in a sign for about seven years before it moves on to the next. So it's considered more of a generational planet. Okay. So the description of Uranus and Cancer is technically valid for a very large amount of people and is considered very general. However, like with any chart... You have to look at it along with everything else. Yeah. And that's why I want to talk about it because it just like fits so much of everything. Okay. Um, so people with Uranus and Cancer, they do not believe in traditional family values. Mm. And they like to bring elements that are usually not acceptable to other people into their relationships. Yep. They are stubborn. They tend to like be the runaway from home type maybe when they're younger. <laughs> or um, they may just suddenly end relationships out of the blue. They're just very unruly and defiant, and it's difficult to guess what their reaction is going to be on any given day. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Uranus is in his fourth house, the planet of chaos in the fourth house, which is the foundation of our natal chart. It's very private, can be very dark, and it represents your literal home environment um, and childhood experiences. Okay. So Uranus in the fourth house creates instability in the home or in the family background. It suggests the possibility of unexpected changes and disruptions in the household. Yes! <laughs> These people are looking for liberation from bonds with their home or they long for freedom and privacy. Okay. Their household is often unusual in some way and it <laughs> contradicts with family customs and traditions. Yes. <laughs> so just... Really a lot about family struggles in this one. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of family struggles. (laughs) So that's it for the planets. Now, uh, to get into the aspect I was referring to earlier that I was researching is the 22 degree killer be killed. I've never heard of that. Okay. So basically there are two different degrees in your chart that you really need to look at. Um, and that is any planet that you have in 18 degrees, the degree of evil, or 22 degrees, kill or be killed. Now, of course, like anything, even like tarot, for example, death does not always mean physical. In fact, most of the time it does not. Yeah, it means like um, when you get, get the death card in tarot, because I also mm-hmm. read tarot, mm-hmm. it's usually the end of a cycle. Yeah, the, like, the, yeah, the beginning of, of something else mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. But in this case and a lot of other cases, it literally meant death. So (laughs) this interpretation um, was made popular by world-famous astrologer Nikola Stojanovic. He researched on the 18th and 22nd degree and figured out that every degree has a special meaning. In other words, when you read your natal chart, you should add the meaning of a particular degree when discussing any placement, which I would love to have the time to start doing that with every single chart and every single placement. Yeah. Hopefully one day, because that I'm sure would like shed a whole lot more light on things. Yes. 
So his research of the zodiac degrees has shown that the 22nd degree of any of the zodiac signs was often active with either killers or the victims, as well as major catastrophic events. For example, James Warren Jones, Jim Jones, oh, he yeah. was an American cult leader, political activist, and self-professed faith healer. So interesting. I feel mm-hmm. like we're definitely going to do an oh, episode I think we should. on him. He started the People's Temple, a religious cult which existed between 1954 and 1978. Jones and his inner circle orchestrated a mass murder-suicide of himself and 909 of his followers, 304 of which were children. I know, it was so fucking sad, dude. In this remote jungle commune in South America on November 18th, 1978. This resulted in the greatest single loss of American civil life in a deliberate act until 9-11. Wow, I didn't know that. The son, uh, the ruler of his eighth house, which represents death, takes place at the 22nd degree of Taurus. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Janine Jones was a nurse who spent all of her years of service in the pediatric ward killing children. No one even knows the exact number of her victims. Uh, Her ascendant is in Taurus. Venus, the ruler of Taurus, is at the degree of evil, the 18th degree of Gemini. And Mercury, which we commonly know as representing communication, but also symbolizes siblings or small children in astrology, is at the 22nd degree of Cancer in her chart. <laughs> so anytime anyone has 18, that's... Yeah, the, the 18th is like, they, well, they call the degree of evil, which I found a little bit less on that. It was more the 22 degree, since that one is like... Um, the killer be killed. So that means, so if you have 22 degrees of mm-hmm. something in your chart, any, yeah. it is more likely that you will either be killed by someone or, or kill, kill someone. someone. Or that aspect means some other ending of something. You know what I mean? Yeah. The same way that like the death tarot would mean for somebody. Yeah. Sometimes it's going to just mean literally. <laughs> literally. Yes. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, lots more examples like that. Um, And as for Albert Fish, his moon occurs at the 22nd degree of Capricorn, conjunction the south node, which is also at 22 degrees. And his Mercury is at 18 degrees in Gemini. Pluto, which is literally the planet of death, is at 18 degrees in Taurus. So... So now let's get into the story of this man who Stojanovic labeled as one of the cruelest criminals ever. Absolutely. Mm, I cannot wait to hear. Okay, so for this one, I just want to say that there is a lot that goes into him, and I'm not going to be able to cover everything in super detail, but I still covered a lot in detail. So I want to give a really big warning for graphic content. Seriously. Nice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's not nice. We'll get into it. Okay, so Albert Fish is known as the Boogeyman, Mm. hence our drink, the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Moon Maniac, and the Brooklyn Vampire. Whoa. And while he was only convicted of three murders, he claimed that the number of his victims was about 100. Now, we don't know if that's him referring to the murders or the rapes. Or the cannibalization. Mm. Or if he was just lying. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, May 19th, 1870, Albert Fish was actually born Hamilton Howard Fish in Washington, D.C. Two parents, Randall and Ellen. 
His father was actually 43 years older than his mother and was 75 when Albert was born. Jeez. Grandpa dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did he go from Hamilton to Albert? Mm -hmm. Well, he wanted people to stop calling him Ham and Eggs, <laughs> which <laughs> was his nickname. And he wanted to go by <laughs> Albert, which was a sibling that he had that died. Mm. And, oh, he was also given the nickname at an orphanage, which is where he would end up spending a lot of his childhood. Oh. Now, his family has quite a long history of mental illness. Mm. His uncle suffered from mania. One of his brothers was confined in a state mental hospital. His sister Annie was diagnosed with, quote, mental affliction, and that could be depression, anxiety, bipolar, like, really anything. It yeah. was the 1800s, yeah. and they really weren't as... like, something's wrong with you. Like, yeah, they weren't as well-versed in mental sure. health as we are yeah. today. Uh, he also had three other relatives that were diagnosed with mental illness, and his mother had oral or visual hallucinations. Wow. <laughs> so his dad was actually a riverboat captain, and then by 1870, he was a fertilizer manufacturer. Hmm. So in 1875, when Fish was about five years old, his old-ass dad died of a heart <laughs> attack at a train station. Hmm. And I'm guessing that his mom really just couldn't handle parenting because she sent him and his siblings to St. John's Orphanage in Washington, where he was abused a lot. So she didn't even die. She just sent him all to live in an orphanage. But remember, she, she was mentally ill. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. So he was abused so much mm. that he started to enjoy the physical pain the beatings brought. Mm. Yikes. He would later say about this time, quote, I was there till I was nearly nine. That's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. So he was there for like four or five years, and in 1880, his mom got her shit together enough. She got a government job, and she was able to get them back. Was there much about, like, did she see them, visit them while they were there? Or was I, I really just... don't. I didn't see much, and yeah. I would guess that she probably didn't yeah. see them very often. So when he was 12, he started a homosexual relationship with a telegraph boy, and this particular boy introduced Fish to drinking urine and eating feces. Ugh. For real. Ugh. He drank piss and he ate shit. <laughs> he started visiting public baths so he could watch men and boys undress and would just, like, hang around there on the weekends. Mm. He was 12. Oh, my God. Yeah. He never had a chance to be a normal person, I don't think. So by 1890, when he was 20... He decides he's going to take off and he moves to New York City. While he was there, he became a prostitute. And he also began raping young boys. That went on for about eight years. And then his mother arranged marriage for him. Like, all right, it's fucking enough. You need yeah. to get married. So she knew what was... I don't think she knew, but she knew that was... he was different and yeah. that he was 28 and not married. <laughs> Yeah, and that in those times, that was, like, what insane. You? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You probably only have a few years left. <laughs> <laughs> so she arranged a marriage between him and a woman named Anna Mary Hoffman. She was nine years younger than him. 
And they actually had six children together. <gasps> oh, God. Albert Jr., Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry Fish. And during all of this, he worked as a house painter. He also continued molesting children, and most of them were boys under the age of six. His own kids, too? No. Or never his own kids? No, and we'll get to that. So at one point, he was with a male lover mm-hmm. who had taken him to a waxworks museum where he was totally fascinated with the bisection of a penis. Hell. <laughs> That's literally all it took. And now he's obsessed with sexual mutilation. Oh, God. So he just continued his life as a family man slash disgusting child molester. Then in 1903, he was arrested for grand larceny, and he was sent to jail at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. While he was there, um, he wasn't, like, all that mad about it. He had lots and lots of sex with men. I bet. I bet. Uh, But one, it was really sad, and one of the sad and fucked up things that I found uh, was that he supposedly had a sexual relationship with a man who was mentally handicapped, and then he tried to castrate him. So, now he's out of jail. It's 1910. He's working in Wilmington, Delaware. And he meets a 19-year-old boy, Thomas Kedden. These two began a sadomasochistic relationship. Now, to each their own, two consenting adults, do you, Mm boo-boo. It's just not really clear whether or not this was consensual or whether he Thomas Kedden was participating willingly Mm -hmm. um, or if he was forced to do these things but when Fish later talked about this he implied that he was intellectually disabled I don't know if he was actually mentally handicapped or if he was just like kind of dumb like right (laughs) I'm not sure so after 10 days of them together like this, mm. Fish takes him to an old farmhouse, and then he starts to torture him. He tortured this poor boy for two weeks. Eventually, he tied Kenan up, and he cut off half of his penis. And he would later say, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. He intended to kill him, obviously. He said he was going to cut up his body and take it home, but he was worried that the heat would draw attention to him. I'm guessing because it's, like, if it's really hot out and you're carrying, like, a a rotting corpse. It's going to stink. I guess. (laughs) Uh, So instead of doing that, he pours peroxide over the wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief, left a $10 bill, kissed Kedden goodbye, and left. He said, quote, took the first train I could get back home. Never heard what became of him or tried to find out. Like, just fucking monstrous. Didn't care at all. Yeah. He didn't kill... He didn't... He didn't leave him alive, which... Yeah. I, and he might have still fucking died. Like... I mean, I I would imagine he probably did. I don't know. Ugh. But I didn't find anything saying uh-huh. that, like, they found... a dead body tied up with a half-cut-off penis, well, and, and you know? And it says his name, right? Or, Thomas Kedden, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, he gave the name. Oh, I'm okay. assuming. Yeah. So then in 1917, his wife leaves him for mm. the handyman, John Straub. Mm. And according to Fish, she took nearly every possession that the family owned. She's a piece of shit, too, mm. because she left Fish 
by himself with all these fucking kids. She loves she, all the kids. She takes all their shit and leaves. Except the kids. Yeah, and not the kids. She wow. just takes all of their possessions and dips out with this dude. I get leaving Fish. He's disgusting. Sure. And being married to him that long, you had to know something's fucked up. Yeah. But you leave the kids? I don't know. Mm, yeah. Whatever. Horrible. She's a piece of shit, too. Yeah. So after this happened, this is when he starts having auditory hallucinations. So one time he actually wrapped himself, like, like rolled himself into a carpet hmm. and just, like, hung out there. And when the kids asked him, like, what are you doing? He just said that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. Wow. Okay. So also around this time, he started indulging in self-harm. Hmm. He would embed needles into his groin and abdomen. So, when he was arrested, they took x-rays showing that he had 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region. And we are absolutely going to put that picture on the Instagram. That wasn't it, though. He would also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle. He would insert wool that was doused with lighter fluid into his anus and light it on fire. (laughs) And so with the kids, he actually never abused them. They said that they actually had a pretty, like, normal relationship with him. He was very loving. Like, he at least acted like he gave a shit about his kids. Like, he never abused them. That is wild. Yeah. Um, However, he did encourage his kids and their friends to paddle his butt with the same nail studded paddle that he used on himself like a game i don't think he was like naked when he did it or anything but that's still really fucking weird weird and i think a lot of this stuff that he likes doing to himself probably speaks on the kind of abuse he started liking Mm -hmm. when he was in the orphanage yeah i mean like he even says it he's like that's where i got started off Mm -hmm. so another thing that his children would actually confirm later on He was growing more and more obsessed with cannibalism and would often serve and eat raw meat. So now we're going to talk about how things start to get a little worse. They get worse. (laughs) So around 1919, Fish stabs an intellectually disabled boy in Georgetown. He would often choose people that were either mentally handicapped or black because he said he just assumed that these people wouldn't be missed when killed. Oh, God. He also had some Dean Coral vibes and claimed that he would sometimes pay other boys to get other kids for him. Mm, Okay. He would torture, mutilate, and murder young children with what he called his, quote, implements of hell. And that was a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw. So his oldest son was eventually sick of his shit and kicked him out, and he became kind of like a drifter. He would be arrested quite a bit for small crimes like vagrancy, which is just being homeless, yeah, <laughs> petty theft, and sending his usual obscene letters. Oh, we didn't talk about his obscene letters? Oh, say, let me uh, tell you! <laughs> sent to who? Oh, so he would do this just for funsies, and uh-huh. he did this a lot. He would find women whose names he found in classified ads, and he would write to them and, like, pretend to be rich or a movie producer, just lies. Sure. And would just write really fucked up things. Like, he thoroughly enjoyed the idea of 
thinking about the person receiving this letter and being just appalled and disgusted. Like, he got off on that shit. Wow. So, a, a lot of them had this story um, about how his son, and th- this was all made up, so none of this was actually true. Okay. He said that his son was paralyzed from the waist down, but was still a naughty boy, and he needed to be spanked, and would offer to pay these women, like, thousands of dollars to supposedly come and whip his paralyzed son. One woman would actually write back to him, and they had, like, a correspondence. She was down for it? Um, like, kind of, but she was, like, offended, but would, like, write back to him, and they had, She's and then like, they, that's gross, but how much do you want to Pretty pay? much, like, I, yeah, it's very weird, and then he would talk about how he wanted her to pee in a cup and watch as he drank down every last drop, <laughs> and then how he, how he wanted her ass to his face so he could taste her sweet peanut butter. <laughs> oh my god. So gross. <laughs> they would just like say crazy shit like this and just send wow. it to women. Uh-huh. So on July 11th, 1924, Fish had found this eight-year-old girl named Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' farm in Staten Island. Now, just picture this because at this point he is 54 years old in the 20s, so he looks more like an old man. Yeah. Like, here, let me show you. So, this is him when he's arrested. Yeah, that's actually the one it's, picture that I saw on that site, too. Yeah. You want to see his uh, picture from when he was arrested in 1903? Ooh, yes. Fucking this. He still looked like an old man. He still looked um, like an old man. Just even, he just looks very uh, disturbed and, um, yeah, like he's like looking through your soul or something. I don't know. It's very creepy. It, it, to me, I look at this and I'm like, this person has no soul. Mm, mm-hmm. Like this, I look yeah, at this and I see a fucking monster is mm-hmm. all I see. Yep. So he comes up to her and he offers this little girl money to come help him look for rhubarb. Rhubarb? I don't fucking know. Wow. I don't... Was rhubarb popular in the 20s? It must have been. <laughs> Maybe that's when, like, a rhubarb pie became very popular. I Maybe. don't know. I mean... So, she was gonna leave with him. Mm-hmm. But her mother found them and chased Fish away. He left, but then he came back and was just, like, hanging out in their barn. And he tried to sleep, but Beatrice's father found him and made him leave. Mm-hmm. Three days after that is when Fish kills eight-year-old boy Francis McDonald. He was reported missing by his parents, and the whole community organized a search to find him. And pretty soon they found him hanging by a tree. Fish had sexually assaulted him and then strangled him with the suspenders he was wearing. He suffered extensive lacerations to his legs and abdomen, and his left hamstring was almost completely ripped off his flesh. So, they're trying to find out, you know, what evil piece of shit could do this. There were actual eyewitnesses who said they saw an old man trying to restrain a young boy who fit the description of Francis into a trolley. This is where he gets the nickname, the gray man, because he looked like an old man. And Francis's mother said she had actually seen him earlier that day and said he, quote, came shuffling down the street mumbling to himself, making queer motions with his hands. I saw his thick gray hair and his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. Wow, that is 
<laughs> pretty um accurate. Yeah. He would later admit to the rape and murder of Francis and added that he had intended on castrating him, but for whatever reason didn't. Like, he heard something and got spooked. Mm-hmm. At this point, Fish is suffering deeply from psychosis and said that he felt that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate children. (sighs) This is how he justified this. He always thought of the story from the Bible where God asked Abraham to kill his son and right Mm. before he did, sent an angel to be like, huh, just kidding. Like he stopped him. Oh, like that was going to happen. So he thought, yes, exactly. He thought if God really didn't want this to happen, he would send an angel and tell him not to. But if he didn't, then obviously that's what he really wanted. I mean, God wants me to (laughs) rape and kill these children. Like, fucking crazy. Wow. Yep. So then February 11th, 1927, three-year-old Billy Beaton and his 12-year-old brother were playing in uh, the hallway of their apartment building in Brooklyn with four-year-old Billy Gaffney. So when the 12-year-old went back to the apartment, the two boys disappeared. Billy Beaton was later found on the roof of the apartments. And when they asked him what happened to Billy Gaffney, he said, quote, the boogeyman took him. And his body was never found. A witness did see a man that matched Fish's description and said he saw him on that day with a boy matching Billy's description. He said he was trying to quiet him down. The boy wasn't wearing a jacket. He was crying for his mother, and he was dragged by a man on and off the trolley. And police were also able to find out that Fish was employed as a house painter in February, and on that day was working just a few miles from where the boy was abducted. So later on, Albert Fish wrote a letter to his attorney and claimed what happened, and this is really gross and fucked up, so yeah. I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone not far from where I took him. I took the G-boy there, stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet, and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back and took trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked home from there. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, and slit these halves in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below his belly button, and then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. This I put in sacks weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them in the pools of slimy water you will see all along the road going to North Beach. Water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best. His monkey and peewees and nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. Oh my god. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt and pepper. It was good. (laughs) Oh god. 
Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees, and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted about a quarter of an hour, I poured out a giant pint of water over it for gravy and put in the ovens. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that was half as good as his sweet, fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew through them in the toilet. Jesus. That's a lot lot to process. (laughs) I wasn't lying yeah. <laughs> when I said this guy is the worst fucking person in the yeah. world. And it, I, I hated reading that. I'm yeah. so, you know, I gave, I gave everyone fair warning. You did. You did. <laughs> Even you, like weeks leading up to it. I'm like, it's I know. bad. <laughs> you were probably like, it's that fucking bad. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> Billy Gaffney's mother actually went to visit Fish in Sing Sing with a detective and, like, two other men. She wanted to see him and ask about her son's death. He refused to speak to her and then started to weep, which is just, oh, my Uh, God. Makes me want to punch you in your face. He he was weeping and said, leave me alone. God. And after two hours of trying to get any answers, she just gave up. And she still didn't believe that Fish was her son's killer. I don't know how. I don't know if maybe Did she want to believe she was he was still alive or something. I, maybe it's just it's a really tough thing to go through. Like sure. I, I I wouldn't know how to process that. But yeah, maybe she just needed him to say I killed him, and because he, he wouldn't. Didn't. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Okay, so now we're going to talk about his most famous case, the okay. reason he got caught, and that is the murder of the very very sweet Grace Bud. So the investigation of this went on for six years, honestly, and because it was from so long ago, this was only solved because of really great detective work. Mm -hmm. And that was Detective William F. King, who stayed on this case. It became his obsession. And if it weren't for him, Fish might not have been caught. Good for him. So on May 25th, 1928... Fish comes across an ad in the newspaper about a boy who wanted a job. And the ad read, quote, young man, 18, wishes position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. So 58-year-old Creepass went to visit the family as if he were going to hire Edward. And he originally planned on taking Edward, tying him up, mutilating him, and leaving him to bleed to death. Like, that was the game plan. And then eating his butt. I, you know what, for him, I maybe... It was, like, the kids. Oh. I don't know. So he and, like, told... like, his meat aged. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was too old. <laughs> yeah. So he told the family that his name was Frank Howard and that he was a farmer and he was going to hire Edward and his friend Willie. And he said that he, you know, I'm, I'll send for you in a couple days. He never showed up, but he did send a telegram to, like, set a later date to meet. So when that time came, he showed up. Uh, only this time, he saw 10-year-old Grace Bud, Edward's younger sister. And when he saw her, he quickly changed his mind on who his victim is going to be. He had her sit in his lap and dig in his pockets for money. It's fucking gross. He wanted the family to think he was trustworthy and also rich. Mm. Uh, so he made up a story saying, you know, oh, you know, 
I'm going to my niece's birthday party. You know, Grace would really love it. Like, is it okay if I take her? And they let her go with him. So I want to judge. I want to judge so hard right now. However, I had to remember this is the 20s. Mm -hmm. Things were very different. It was a much more trustworthy time. Mm -hmm. And also they're thinking their son is going to get this job. They think he's some rich guy. And they didn't want to like offend him and ruin their son's chances at like a really great job. If it happened in this day and age, yes, judge all night long. Yeah, um, but this was a hundred years ago almost, yeah, yeah. so. Let it slide. Exactly. So either way, it's just, it's really fucking sad. Yeah. So he left with her, and that is the last time they would see her. After they realized she was now missing, her family couldn't really provide any actual information to the police about him, except for his appearance. But even then... He slightly altered that as well when he became Frank Howard. Changed his look. Well, yeah. And they didn't have, like, cameras or IDs or IDs the way they do now. You know what I mean? So you could literally go anywhere new Mm -hmm. and make up a fake name and change your appearance. It was much easier then. It was much easier then. So that's why I say that the reason he's caught is really just because of Mm -hmm. great detective work. Mm -hmm. So... Because of this, all they had was a description of him that didn't even, wasn't even an accurate description of him because he changed it when he Mm -hmm. became this person. Police ended up arresting a 66-year-old man named Charles Edward Pope, September 5th of 1930, because his estranged wife accused him. Oh my god. (laughs) He was in jail for 108 days. Before they found him not guilty on December 22nd of 1930. So fast forward to November 11th of 1934. Fish is still not caught, but he knew that one time they did arrest someone and Mm -hmm. it was the wrong man. I don't know. I think he just needed the attention or maybe he was just that cocky that they didn't catch him. Mm -hmm. So he ended up writing a letter to Grace's mom. Besides that this entire letter is fucked up. Yeah. Grace's mom couldn't read. Mm. She had to have her oldest, she had to have Edward read the letter. So he had to read this out loud. So I don't know. It's just, it's really fucked up. Mm. So here we go. (laughs) My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on a steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he had two others that went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go into any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or a girl would be brought out, and just what you wanted cut from them. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long, he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, and burned everything they had on. Several times, every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. 
First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. I know. Sorry. Listen, we are laughing because we are uncomfortable. uncomfortable. (laughs) Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next. He went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street Rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry, and she tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her, and, and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death. Then I cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have, had I wished. She died a virgin. Okay, when we were talking about gluttonous ass tourists, I was not thinking. When you said food is the thing they're most gluttonous about, (laughs) and you were like, oh, is there a thing? I'm like, there's a thing. There's a thing, all right. So the letter was delivered in an envelope that had a small hexagonal emblem with the letters NYPCBA, which stood for New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. So when the police went to this company, they spoke with a janitor who said that he had actually taken some of their stationary home, but that he left it at his rooming house when he moved out. So they went there next, and when they spoke to the landlady, she said Fish had just checked out of that room a few days earlier. She said that his son had sent him money and that he asked her to hold his next check for him. So he was coming back. Mm -hmm. So the detective waited outside of that room until Fish returned. Nice. He agreed to go in for questioning, but then he just started waving around a razor. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. King disarmed him and took him into police headquarters. He never denied killing Grace and told police that he was originally going to kill her brother Edward. He said that it, quote, never entered his head to rape the girl, but then later admitted that while he was kneeling on her chest and strangling her, he did have two involuntary ejaculations. They used this in his trial to claim that the kidnapping was sexually motivated and avoided any mention of cannibalism. Like, that was the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) That's a big part of it. (laughs) So, his trial for the murder of Grace Budd began March 11th, 1935. It lasted 10 days. Fish pleaded insanity, saying that he he was hearing voices from God that was telling him to kill children. A bunch of psychiatrists testified about Fish's sexual fetishes. And get ready, because we're going to get a vocabulary lesson that nobody asked for. Yay! (laughs) I I knew some of these, obviously, you know, you will too. Mm -hmm. I just feel like if I had to learn what the other ones were, you do too. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I will say I don't feel like 
So pedophilia is listed in here. Mm-hmm. I don't consider that a sexual fetish, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just think that that's, like, a crime. So. Yeah. It's just, that's a mental. <laughs> but it is yeah. in this list. It is okay. just not of my opinion. Sure. So it included sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibitionism, which is exposing yourself in public like a flasher, Mm -hmm. voyeurism, which is watching people engage in intimate behaviors like a peeping tom, Mm -hmm. Um, peekurism, I think I'm saying that right, is the sexual interest in penetrating the skin of another person with sharp objects like pins, razors, knives, Hmm. cannibalism, coprophagia, which is eating shit, Urophilia, which is the sexual excitement at the sight or thought of urine or urination. Why do all these things have names? (laughs) (laughs) Because of Albert Fish. (laughs) Um, I don't know how to say this, so we're just going to try. Hematologia, which is the interest in using blood or blood-like images in sexual play. Pedophilia, Mm, not a fetish. Mm -hmm. Necrophilia and... Infibulation, which is female genital mutilation by sewing the vagina up. Wait, that's a fetish? I fucking guess. I looked at it. It's like um, a religious practice. I forget uh, the religion. I forget the religion. It was like, <laughs> out of all of this, this is my least favorite part, oh, yeah. was learning what this was. Like, I like, I hurt when I read yeah. it. Yeah. They sew the vagina shut. They leave a little, it's supposed to like... For the religious aspect, so it's like, supposed to like kind of sex. Yeah, it's supposed to like keep them pure, and they sew it up and only leave like a tiny hole for like um, for when they have their period. Yeah, so enjoy. Mm. <laughs> Please tell me that's not a practice that actually still goes on. Um, I I mean I think it still does, but not as often. I mean, ritualistic cannibalism still happens. Yeah, it's just. Not as prevalent, and I highly doubt it's happening here. Yeah, at least not a not a lot. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just wondering I, what religion practices that. I saw the definition, and I just felt so bad. I was like, you know, I I don't feel like going down this I'm rabbit hole. Not gonna read any more about this. Yeah, yeah I don't, don't want to go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. So. Fish was labeled a psychiatric phenomenon because nowhere in legal medical records had there been another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. I believe that. So the defense talked about this whole thing with God and the Abraham sacrificing mm-hmm. his son shit and said that his he said that his cannibalism was like his communion. They argued that he was insane, that he did know the difference between right and wrong, but that he believed what he was doing wasn't wrong because of the whole religion thing. Mm-hmm. So it was actually considered um, insane knowledge. Like, I know right and wrong, but I believe I'm doing this for a higher purpose. So uh, I believe what I'm doing is right. Okay. So that's that insane knowledge. Okay. So the prosecution had witnesses who testified that he was sane. He was weird, but he was sane. They said his sexual fetishes aren't going to make anyone kill someone. That religious cannibalism was psychopathic. Um, that it was just a matter of taste and not actual evidence of psychosis. And there were others, but you, know, you get the point. Like, he, yeah. he wasn't insane. Yeah, yeah. So all the jurors agreed that Fish was, in fact, insane. 
But they felt he should be executed anyways. I agree. I agree. Um, they all found him sane and guilty, and Fish was sentenced to death by electric chair. I have, there's a very famous picture of him in the electric chair. Yeah, die, you old man. Just dead eyes. Oh, yeah. Soulless. Mm-hmm. Monster. Like, literally, when I told you I've had, like, nightmares about this man, I took a serial killer class in mm-hmm. college, and we learned about him for, like, two weeks. Oh. Like, the ins and outs of him. I watched documentaries. Like, yeah, I mean... I got an A, but (laughs) I would hope so. I would hope so. There's my credentials for this podcast, (laughs) but yeah, fucking crazy. So what he said about being sentenced to death by the electric chair, he said, quote, what a thrill it will be if I have to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill. The only one I haven't tried. Then on January 16th, 1936, he got his thrill and was dead three minutes after he entered the chamber. His last words were, quote, I don't even know why I'm here. So people said that because it took two jolts to actually kill him, that all the fucking pins he had in his groin oh. had, like, something to do with it. Like, and I remember hearing that. Like, like that, blocking some of the yeah, electricity. Yeah, yeah. And so I had, I had heard that before. I mean, that's good, because it probably just hurt a lot more right. for a lot longer. Well, they actually proved that that was wrong. A, uh, a lot of other people died in about the same amount of time. Some people, oh, okay. it just took two jolts. Okay. Um. Well, hours before Fish died... He wrote several pages to give to his lawyer as his final statement. The press wanted to know what they said. They kept bombarding this lawyer. They just wanted something. They wanted anything. Can you tell us? Just read a part of it. And he refused. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. And that is the story of the killer who haunts my fucking dreams, Albert <laughs> oh, Fish. Man. Literally the, the boogeyman. Now haunt my dreams. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> wow. <sighs> okay, I did it. You did it. It's over. <laughs> it's over. Enjoy. <laughs> and honestly, I have to say, whenever I'm looking at serial killers, Taurus is not really a common one. But two of the biggest ones that I've come across are Tauruses. Hmm. Yeah. This is, and the fact that this is probably the most fucked up that I've learned about as yeah. of yet. Yeah. <laughs> and he's uh, a Taurus. I think it's very strange considering, aren't a Just, lot of uh, uh, killers with Virgos and Sages? A lot of Sag, yeah. And there's there's also a decent amount of um, Pisces, too, mm. if I'm right. Not, if just, I'm thinking, pa- like, not just Pisces moon? <laughs> not just Pisces moon. Pisces sun. So I can't, uh, can't relate to that. <laughs> well, is there but, anything you, know, you wanted to add? We can just blame his Aries rising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Except for the gluttony of the Taurus. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the only Taurus part that he, like, really just went crazy with. Yeah. In the worst way. 
<sighs> is there anything else you want to say? <laughs> I think we've said enough. I think we've said enough. <laughs> so please like, follow, review on all the things. If you have a true crime, unexplained, or paranormal story that happened to you or in your hometown, send us an email at killerstargazing at gmail.com. We do spooky sessions semi-regularly, and we love to read your stories. You can follow us on Instagram at killerstargazing. We post pictures from the episodes that we do and all of our killer cocktail recipes. You can find me on there at mal underscore Evelyn underscore. And where can they find you, Bethany? At Blame My Pisces Moon. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye, guys.